I have uh, three speakers who uh, have all, are all going to go last. And uh, we need a conflicts of law rule here to determine who goes last first. And um, David has won that, that ballot. So David Stewart, for, oh, he's gone away. He's run away. Yes. So sovereign immunity and international organizations, David. Right. And I'm going to speak only on the, on the um, international organization immunities issue, although happy um, as one of the reporters who worked on the sovereign immunity portion of the restatement forth to handle any, any questions that you may have on that and perhaps to respond to uh, the next two presentations. Um, my presentation is a little different than others since it's prospective rather than retrospective, uh, and that is to make the case that uh, in uh, an additional uh, um, uh, renewed undertaking on the, on the restatement fourth, one of the areas that clearly merits attention in, in my view is, is the area of international, the immunities of international organizations, um, that it could be very usefully inc incorporated and, and addressed in the uh, in the uh, under, renewed under, undertaking, um, precisely because it's a question that would benefit uh, um, uh, U.S. courts and U.S. practitioners in the area. Uh, it's an area to um, hark back to what Ralph said at the beginning, about which they don't really know or understand very much. It's an arcane and somewhat narrow field, rather complicated but of increasing importance. Uh, so that it would be helpful to the development of the law and, and to the application of that law to have it restated for the benefit of the courts and, and, the, uh, and the practitioners. Clearly, in my view, it's an area of, of foreign relations law. Um, it's um, narrower, of course, than the area of foreign sovereign immunities, narrower in scope and, and in application both. Um, but it is um, uh, clearly one of increasing relevance and importance with the growth in the number of international organizations uh, around the world, certainly also in the United States, and the growth in the number of, of cases that arise. Um, our statute, as you well know, is um, antique. It goes back to 1945, uh, clearly not well suited to the contemporary world. In fact, adopted before we really had any organizations that were headquartered in the United States. And it's sparse in its, uh, in its substantive content. In addition, the number of uh, treaty relationships that we have that bear on the question of the immunities of international organizations present in the United States has grown um, uh, quite considerably. The number of decisions in this area is not insubstantial, but increasing. Uh, so courts increasingly uh, are addressed to have to address questions of, of how we deal with uh, international organizations. Arguably, with the growth in the number of international organizations around the world, it's an emergent area of, of customary international law. Those of you who teach international organizations uh, law probably have to deal with the question, is there such a thing as a discrete area of international law? And if there is a, of international organizations law, and if there is, is it confined simply by, by, uh, by treaty, or, or can we say that the, uh, the number of cases that uh, are addressed around the world by the number of host countries, and those are increasing as well, um, have created a, a corpus of what might well be called customary international law of, of international organizations. Um, 
And um, in any event, we, we need to, I think, provide greater uh, guidance to our courts. Uh, difficult because it's an area that's quite different from the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act. And my experience has been that uh, U.S. courts tend to approach questions of international law with uh, the background of the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act in mind, but the two are really quite different, serve different kinds of purposes, have different, in my view, different points of origin. Uh, the case that brings this all into focus, of course, which some of you are, are, are familiar with, is the JAM case, now pending decision in the international, in, in the Supreme Court. Uh, quite a range of opinions uh, uh, on, on how that case might come out, ought to come out, but the basic proposition is that um, uh, we should interpret the International Organization Immunities Act as applying to international organizations the same rules that apply to uh, foreign sovereigns under the FSIA. Um, there'll be a range of views in the, in the room on that question, but in my view, those are apples and oranges, and the two statutes just simply can't go together. That's it's not possible, meaning, uh, at the very least, um, that there's probably going to need for legislative uh, clarification here. Um, but it's an illustration of how this area has become, if not critical, certainly increasingly important and in need of a, of a restatement. Uh, and that restatement, I think, has to take into account uh, the growing uh, body of foreign practice and the growing number of host countries. Um, those of you who teach in this area probably uh, would agree that the field of international um, organizations law in general is, is certainly now part of uh, foreign relations law broadly considered. If you look at the number of textbooks and, and treatises in the area, it's rather stunning uh, from, from someone who's practiced in the area, and yet uh, it doesn't uh, really uh, provide a lot of the answers that, that may might want. The undertaking would be necessarily more descriptive than prescriptive, I think, uh, and it wouldn't be um, as uh, maybe challenging in terms of some of the questions that have been raised today as, as uh, other areas have been. Uh, but it would have, I think, a, a clear impact not only on how U.S. courts and practitioners address a helpful impact on how, how those issues are addressed in U.S. court, uh, probably also relevant and useful from the perspective of foreign courts, uh, and most certainly uh, some degree of impact on how international organizations themselves consider these questions of immunities. JAM, for example, poses the, the fundamental question of whether um, a malfeasance or a harm that is attributed to an international organization uh, should be addressed in the domestic courts with jurisdiction or within the international organization itself. Uh, in the case of, of, uh, of the JAM, uh, the, uh, the wrongs in, in question took place arguably either solely in India or partly in India and partly in the uh, headquarters of the IMF in Washington, which raises, for those of you who want to talk about jurisdictional and um, jurisdictional aspects, a number of real questions. Is it extraterritorial? Is it somehow here? What is the business of a U.S. court to adjudicate decisions, internal decisions of an international organizations that um, taken in Washington, but which have entirely their effect, is that extraterritorial in some meaningful sense. Um, so um, clearly there is, a, there is an impact of um, a broad um, um, reach. Um, I don't see the restatement as being a codification of the law, but rather an exploration of the principles. Uh, and I think that um, I will stop there because I'm sure that uh, even what I've said will provoke some response from, from those of you like Christina who teach and, and write in this area. Good. Next, Beth. Mm -hmm.
Thank you. Th thanks to you and to us who've, who've stayed. As, I, as people were apologizing to me to la last night, I said, if I, were on the last, if I weren't on the last panel, I'd, I'd probably be out of here by now. Um, but uh, I'm, I'm glad to have been able to stay through to the end. Uh, when I was thinking about what, what comments I would pull out of, the, I, I would add to the paper, my first thought was that um, it, a, a common issue I, I've had over my scholarly career is thinking about my audience and tempering my, my comments and my analysis to to adjust to my audience. So I thought, well, you know, in, in, in person, I'll, I'll tell you what I really feel about this statute. Uh, then I went back and looked at my draft and found on the first page um, that I describe it as arbitrary, vindictive, hypocritical, and politicized. So I, I, I guess I, my, my controls were, were off when I was, was drafting this. Um, I will say a, a, a couple of the reasons why um, um, more, even, even more than usually irritated about this aspect of, of U.S. law and practice. Um, one is, and, and, and this explains why, it, although I was trying to shorten why I left Dean a half-page paragraph about how the statute was first was amended and made its way through Congress, that uh, in the 90s I was part of a coalition that was working to stop changes in the immigration laws um, and was actually fairly successful, things that had to do with claims of terrorism and violence, largely successful because of the strength of the Irish lobby in, in Congress and, the, and uh, their, their concern about its uh, the use of the statutes against the Irish nationalists. Um, and then Oklahoma City happened, the bombing, the federal building, and the statute just rolled its way, powered its way through, through Congress, even though, of course, that, that statute had, that, that bombing had nothing to do with international terrorism. Um, but the, the good news at the beginning of the process was that the statute was quite broad, and it was, it was geared at uh, this particular provision of the statute was geared at providing a jurisdiction over claims for human rights abuses, um, which would have been quite good for my clients and my, my line of work. I was, uh, I was litigating cases at that point in the 90s full time. Uh, and then it was narrowed to only apply to acts of terrorism. And then it was narrowed at the, at the last minute to only apply to um, to uh, state sponsors of terrorism. So, um, so I, I, I feel that particular focus of the statute in a, in, in a personal way. Uh, my, my other uh, response to the statute also reflects uh, what, what I think is an assumption that uh, in many circles that human rights advocates and, and advocates of liability for human rights abuses support the statute. Uh, which, which may be true in, in many circles, but because any opening uh, against foreign sovereign immunity or sovereign immunity in general is a, is a good precedent. Um, and I, I think as, as clear in this paper, I push back on that assumption, at least for me and, and many of the people I work with, because um, I don't think that a statute which is targeted in an unprincipled way is supportive and helpful for the, the, the human rights and accountability projects that I'm, that I'm so committed to. 
Um, so, um, so my specific objections to the statute and uh, and then how I I, th I think that that it, it, the implications of that for the restatements treatment of it um, on which I'm I'm less clear. But um, first, uh, the law as written, um, I think that the the privileging of terrorism as uh, as a single violation of human rights that gets special treatment is problematic. Um, the, the restatement says, well, there's there's a, a lot of language internationally um, criticizing, condemning terrorism, and providing you know, offering support for victims of terrorism, um, and certainly a lot of that uh, came through the United Nations system after after September 11th. But um, but but I I I think that that's a, a, a focus that's not justified by the characteristics of terrorism and um, in, inappropriately uh, focuses on one kind of abuse and not on and, and not on others that are equally egregious and equally criticized by the international community. Um, I also think that the lifting of immunity for a small set of hand-picked dis disfavored states is um, is really unjustifiable. Um, you know, obviously, there's no process, there's no fact finding, there's no public um, explanation. States come on and off in an equally arbitrary way. Cuba came off the list when, um, uh, under the Obama administration, relations were being um, were improving, heading towards normalization. If that process hadn't been completed, I, I think it's pretty clear that the, the Trump administration would not have taken Cuba off the list. But all that, even to the extent that, that sponsoring terrorism is, is a, a, a coherent standard that, that, that could be applied and that is, you know, might have been applied in a coherent way, whatever it is that Cuba was accused of, had their beha that behavior had changed significantly many years before that, and the moment at which Cuba came off the list, I think, was 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 arbitrary and and related to U.S. diplomatic relations with Cuba, not to Cuba's behavior as a as an accused sponsor of terrorism. Um, and and as I, I mentioned in in the article, I think there are many other states who could be on that list, and I um, I enjoyed the process. In a, in a painful sort of way of remembering some of the more egregious examples that and and behaviors that that uh, that I think could have qualified a state for being considered a state sponsor of terrorism and as I make clear in in the paper I think the United States would um, would would be on that list as well um, and um, so that's the law the, the basic concept of the law then the, there's the way the law has been amended and I just you know, what are the adjectives I used? I, I think it, all, all of those bad things apply to how the law has been amended over the, the, the 20 plus years um, to, um, to you know, correct specific problems that, for particular cases named specifically in the statute or one of the amendments applied to only cases that were filed on the following four dates which um, you know basically brought four cases within the 
the, the, the change in the statute. And I, ha I have a memory that there was a typo and one of the dates was wrong and it had to be corrected afterwards by Congress, although I... I, I think it was the initials of a district court judge was that who it? had a particular... Oh. Um, case, the initials were accidentally inverted the first so the time, case so they had to pass a technical okay. amendment, getting the initials Thank in the you. right order. Thank you. I, I spent an inordinate amount of time trying to find that yep. two weeks ago and could not. Um, <coughs> so, um, so it's just, I mean, I, I think it's, it, it's bad legislating, and I think it's in some large understanding of the meaning of due process, I think it violates due process to have Congress targeting specific um, specific cases in that way and specific defendants. Um, and, and, and then there's, there's the problem of the law as applied, which um, has produced a, a body of cases in which the states sometimes um, defend on, in terms of jurisdiction, sometimes not, um, and then don't defend on the facts. And um, the default judgments um, in which the judge is required to review the facts and, and find on the facts um, do produce a lot of, uh, of fact-finding material, but I would say with very little um, reason to think that they are necessarily accurate fact-finding and um, you know, the, some, some of the example, the, the, the examples that pop up the most, the most often in people writing about it are the fact that um, both Iraq and Iran have been found liable by U.S. district courts for the September 11th attacks, um, dis despite real flaws in that, in, in, in the factual finding and um, despite the statements of, of U.S. government officials about liability um, for those attacks. Um, so that it gives very little reason to have confidence in the fact finding and in the, the conclusions. Um, that slides over into the, the law as written that the, the standard for providing material support to these acts is, um, is a loose one so that, for example, Iran, which as I pointed out is, is the most uh, common target, is, has been held liable for the acts of, uh, of organizations that it provides some support for. And um, it, it's not clear as a matter of international law, I think also not, not clear as a matter of, um, of just uh, good uh, tort liability principles that the amount, the support that, that Iran actually has given to, the, to these groups should, um, should, should render it liable for their their actions, um, and although I don't say in the article, I think it's it's clear that the the reason that Iran has been such a target is that Iran had money frozen in in U.S. banks, and um, and that Iran is such a, a dis disfavored state within the United States, and some of that applied to a lesser extent to to Cuba. Um, so um, so. Um, as a matter of international law, I mean, I, 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 was, I had a lot of momentum as I was writing what I didn't like about the statute, and then I, I slowed down quite a, lit, uh, quite a bit in my international law analysis because um, it just seems to me obvious that this is not fair. And um, as a general matter, I think there's a, a, a due process implication that um, state, that, that 
states' judicial systems should treat litigants and foreign litigants fairly, not clear that that, how that applies, not clear to me how that applies, certainly in terms of due process to foreign states or under international law. So, so in, in, in the paper, I took a, take a few initial, offer a few initial thoughts about what I think is, um, might violate international law in how uh, U.S. courts are treating foreign sovereigns, and then even more so how they're treating foreign sovereigns in situation, in the extraordinary situation of denying state immunity that otherwise would be granted. And I haven't made that connection. I don't make that connection in the paper, but I do think that different standards, uh, that, that, that heightened standards apply there to, to some extent. Um, so um, one other point that, this, looking at the language of the restatement, one, one detail and then there's the larger question. Um, the detail is something that I, I hadn't, that, that, that jumped out of me only in doing some, some reading um, in the past few weeks. But um, we all talk about this, and I've just talked about it as a statute that removes immunity for state-sponsored terrorism. That's not what the statute actually says. The, the, the statute says that for um, s certain acts, uh, these four acts of torture, extrajudicial execution, hostage taking, and aircraft sabotage, that uh, immunity is, 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 there's an exception to immunity for states that are on the state sponsors of terrorism list. It doesn't say for acts of state sponsored terrorism. Um, are all acts of torture and extradition and, and execution committed by, by uh, for which a state can be held liable? Uh, do they all count as terrorism? I, I don't think that's, that's logically essential. I think that, um, for example, in the, the old case of Nelson v. Saudi Arabia, when uh, Nelson had been recruited and gone to work in Saudi Arabia in a public hospital and uh, said that he'd been, after he had, he was a whistleblower and he was, uh, as I remember, arrested and tortured uh, and tried to sue Saudi Arabia but ran into, um, but couldn't under the FSIA. If Saudi Arabia were on the state sponsors of terrorism list, isn't that an act of torture committed by uh, employees of a state sponsor of terrorism? And I don't, is it, is it terrorism? Uh, terrorism uh, in the U.S. definition requires some um, intent to influence the public opinion or a state. I don't, I don't see that as terrorism as those facts developed. Um, so, um, so for the, the larger question of the restatement, it, you know, it's also uh, at this point in my paper really a, uh, posing the, the, the question of whether the brief treatment of this statute under international law is, is adequate, uh, is sufficient, and um, it, 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 it reads to me as a, an effort to, uh, as a US-centric, this is our statute, no one has objected to it, not that we would, well, which isn't true, but we wouldn't, we don't care that Iran has objected to it. Um, and therefore, um, it's, you know, in the absence of anyone telling us not to, we'll, we'll keep doing it. And that doesn't seem to me, this fits in with some of our other conversations, that doesn't seem to me to be an adequate treatment of, 
of international law. Right. Let's do that. Okay. <clears throat> um, so first off, thank you to Paul for organizing this conference. It really has been a terrific opportunity to delve into many different aspects of the fourth restatement. So the, the general question that my paper addresses is how to assure an extended shelf life for the fourth restatement. Um, and I think that this is an important question for two reasons. One is if the wait in between the third and the fourth restatement is any indication, it will be quite some time before we shall see a fifth restatement of foreign relations law. Um, the other is that both international law and US law are moving targets for many of the topics that are covered by the fourth restatement. Um, and so to explore this question, I also take um, a closer look at the terrorism exception um, to the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act. I think it has some unusual features, but it's nevertheless um, a useful example for considering some of these bigger questions. So <clears throat> the third restatement didn't have to deal with the terrorism exception because at the time that it was written, there was none. Um, the terrorism exception is a relatively recent innovation in US law. As Beth mentioned, it was enacted in the wake of the um, Oklahoma City bombing in 1996 um, and has been tweaked uh, or significantly amended um, almost every single year since then. Many of those tweaks, as Beth suggested, um, were targeted to help particular plaintiffs. Um, some of the revisions were more cross-cutting. Um, and I have long found the separation of powers dynamics when it comes to the terrorism exception fascinating because it's not the usual foreign affairs story um, where Congress plays the role of the passive loser. Um, this is a situation where Congress is year after year quite active um, and in many cases gets its way over the objections of the executive branch um, and in two prominent cases even over the vetoes of, uh, president, of presidents. Um, so one aspect of the public debate about this provision that I think is especially striking is the absence of at least um, public statements on the part of the executive branch that the original ter terrorism exception um, and that also its various expansions over the years violate customary international law obligations with respect to foreign sovereign immunity. Um, and the silence persists even though, uh, I think within the, what it, within the State Department, um, there, I would surmise that there are doubts about the consistency with international law of um, that provision. Foreign governments have vocally protested um, the terrorism exception and its um, various amendments. So why the silence on the part of the U.S. executive branch? Um, one explanation is that it's strategic. It's an effort to avoid supplying ammunition to these states that are disfavored 
in the foreign policy of the United States, um, right, to avoid putting them in a position where they can say, look, even the, even the executive branch has said these violate international law. Um, and the concern here, of course, is not just hypothetical. Um, in 2016, Iran initiated a contentious case against the United States, arguing that certain enforcement provisions that had been, um, that are part of the terrorism exception, violate uh, the 1955 Treaty of Amity between the U.S. and Iran. Um, so how ought the restatement address the terrorism exception? Um, in light of, first, it's uh, at least questionable consistency with customary international law. Um, and second, the fact that Congress keeps legislating further expansions of the exception um, while the executive branch remains silent. So <clears throat> where the fourth statement um, comes out is this. So the restatement articulates a basic customary international law rule when it comes to foreign sovereign immunity, saying, quote, under international law and the law of the United States, a state is immune from the jurisdiction of the courts of another state, subject to certain exceptions. A reporter's note points out that the United States was the first country to curtail jurisdictional immunity for acts of state-sponsored terrorism, and indicates that Canada followed. Um, points out that the UN Convention on the, on the Jurisdictional Immunities of States and Their Property um, neither endorses nor precludes the removal of immunity for acts of state-sponsored terrorism, and says, at the end of the day, um, it's not clear whether the terrorism exception contravenes any presumptive jurisdictional constraint under international law. Um, now, uh, one might quarrel that this conclusion understates um, the international law problems with the terrorism exception. Um, as a matter of process within, uh, the process of coming up with the um, fourth restatement, this conclusion raises questions for me. Um, first about the role of the executive branch. So a number of pieces have praised the collaborative relationship between um, the reporters and the executive branch. Um, I wondered whether the same silent that affects the United States public statements um, about these provisions has also affected the process of drafting these restatement provisions. Um, it also made me curious about the role of the International Advisory Panel. So we have with us today one member of that panel. Um, I might imagine that the reception of that panel <laughs> um, to the provisions of the restatement on the terrorism um, exception launched a lively debate, if I had to guess. Um, but let me come back then to this question, right, setting aside how um, this particular rule is assessed in light of customary international law, um, how we might think about this shelf life question Right? How do we ensure the usefulness of the restatement on subjects where both US law and international law are in a state of flux? Um, and 
As my comments yesterday suggested, in my view, the restatement has um, an important educational and perhaps a corrective role to play. And I think that this role applies to both um, engaging in best efforts to articulate individual substantive rules of customary international law, and second, when it comes to explaining the, inter the basics of the international legal system um, to judges and practitioners who I think are a key audience of the restatement. On the first point, um, articulating individual substantive rules of customary international law, there was some discussion about the appropriate role of the restatement. I think one important data point in my view is that Article 38.1D of the ICJ statute specifically acknowledges a role for the teachings of the most highly qualified publicists, that's you reporters, um, of the various nations as a subsidiary means for the determination of rules of law. I think that reinforces the conclusion that it's very much the restatement's business to engage um, with articulating rules of customary international law. On the latter point, um, what is it that the restatement ought to address when it comes to the basics of the international legal system? I think it would be useful for the restatement to say more about what's at stake as a matter of international law when it comes to individual judicial decisions. Um, and one particular point that I think the restatement could, could uh, usefully address is international responsibility to reinforce the point that decisions by individual state and federal courts um, may not only generate international friction, um, but could actually cause the United States to incur international responsibility. Um, and again, this is not a purely hypothetical concern since the third restatement. Um, there are some prominent examples that could be pointed to, the consular cases from the early 2000s, um, as well as the ICJ suit that I just mentioned, which resulted at least in part from the Supreme Court's decision in Bank Markazi. Um, so the second general issue that I think it would be worth addressing in an extension of the fourth restatement is a question of how customary international law evolves over time. Um, jurisdiction and immunity, two of the three main topics covered in the current restatement, have seen significant changes over the course of the last century and recent decades. Um, and I think it would be useful for the restatement to help judges and practitioners understand how customary international law changes. The restatement third in its first sections does provide a valuable primer on the international legal system, but in my view, it doesn't go nearly far enough. Um, it's worth noting too that on both of these points, the International Law Commission has recently done some work um, this raises an interesting and perhaps separate question worth discussing about the, uh, the interaction, um, both actual and potential, between the restatement and the work of the International Law Commission. Um, I think it would be quite useful to have the restatement address these issues in part because of what I would hope that it would provoke lawyers and judges would do in individual cases that implicate customary international law rules. 
Um, and perhaps may help to serve as a corrective for the executive branch's silence on some of these issues. So simply flagging the customary international law issues and the, the international law consequences of some of these cases may prompt lawyers to enlist more expert help when it comes to briefing. Um, it may encourage them themselves to research questions like, well, so how have foreign states reacted to the particular legislated provision that I am looking at in this particular case? It may spur lawyers and judges alike to reach out to the State Department um, to help understand the consequences of a particular uh, case for foreign policy and international law. The State Department may or may not ultimately participate, um, but extending that invitation may be valuable. Um, there's a final question that comes up um, that is perhaps implicit in many of the provisions of the restatement, um, both the fourth and its predecessors. Uh, it's not one that is addressed expressly, um, but might be worth raising, which is, so should the restatement directly exhort judges to comply with international law? Um, my, in, my own inclination on that question is probably not. I'm not sure uh, that such exhortations would go over well with key audiences. But I do think, nevertheless, that providing more basic information about the international legal system um, would allow the restatement to, if nothing else, wave a yellow caution flag um, and encourage the procedural steps by both litigants and judges that would avoid unwitting and potentially deleterious engagement with international law. Thank you. I've got Bill, Ed, Paul, and Tom, uh, and I'm going to jump in with a chair of moderator's prerogative. The, what we've got here is a vignette of a point that arose yesterday, which is how the restatement operates in the shadow of legislation and what, what the purpose of that is and how it works and how uh, it's partly to do with, in a way, the, the, the relationship of common law and statute, which is something that I've spent a, a lot of my time dealing with. I think that... Um, What it does show is how statute, when, when you have statute, which gets obsolete, if you've got something very sensitive like terrorism, you, 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 have, you, you have, which if you, if you like it, you say it's keeping it up to date. And if you don't like it, you say it's knee-jerk reactions to events. But if you have something which is less uh, sensitive and in the public eye, you, you leave the statute from 1945 and you don't update it and that in fact must increase the role of common law in interpreting, in working out how things are going to go. And uh, what strikes me, and uh, this goes back to those that, that, that the lively discussion about whether there should be a relationship. Some, the point was made yesterday, why should you ever have a restatement where you've got a statute? But actually, you, you want a restatement because a restatement, if you've got an older statute, you've got a restatement that will meld the common law into the, into the statute. And um, 
I said this to somebody yesterday, and I'll repeat it, that the, 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 those who like Dicey should remember that Dicey's Conflict of Laws book, now Dicey, Morris, and Collins, has article, comment, and illustrations. It's, it's not a complete million miles away. So if you like Dicey's treaties, but you don't like the restatement, you, you really have to work out what it is that you're doing. Um, we, in, in the area of immunity, I, I sat in a number of cases that involved issues of immunity. Most of our modern immunity cases our, our act, so the Sovereign Immunity Act, is a 1978 act. There have been one or two amendments. But basically, that act was passed at a time when the, what, uh, the, what, what some call the war against terror was not there. So it, it, it was a classic attempt to um, take the common law and codify it. And our courts have... Uh, had to interpret it in their normal crab-like common law way, which means that the limits to state immunity are stated in a principle, what the courts think of as a principled way. You know, there's no immunity for breach of use cogens, there's no immunity for um, breaches of fundamental human rights. But, of course, it leaves the courts very exposed to the advantages. You don't have the sort of art, uh, the, the arbitrary distinctions that you have with a statute. You name countries and you don't name others. And the disadvantage is there's an issue about the legitimacy of what the judicial branch is doing. And our judicial branch has much less legitimacy constitutionally than yours does. So those are my reactions as a foreigner to this, and so let us let me turn to you. The first one is Bill. Thank you. Um, so uh, fascinating discussion so far. Um, I, I would start by just observing, um, Christina kept referring to, to the terrorism exception. I would point out that there are terrorism exceptions, <coughs> plural, uh, because in Congress, in its infinite wisdom, in uh, 2016 passed JASTA, um, which applies only to terrorism in the United States, but does cure some of the hypocrisy that Beth finds so troubling because it's not limited to state sponsors of terrorism, and in fact was specifically passed to allow suits to proceed against Saudi Arabia, one of the United States allies. So, um, and I, Dave will remember that I pushed him and Ingrid very hard on putting more in JASTA into uh, section 460 and was unsuccessful. But um, maybe for a future, for the restatement fifth. Um, I want to defend uh, the terrorism exceptions against the charge that they violate customary international law because I don't think that they do. And I'm going to set to one side any arguments based on the, the idea that there's some general principle of uh, sovereignty uh, that leads to definite rules that courts uh, apply. My approach to this question is the approach of the International Court of Justice in Germany versus Italy, which is to look at state practice and opinio juris. Mm -hmm. um, and I think if you do that and you follow through the way the court proceeds in Germany versus Italy, that case obviously involved um, the acts of uh, armed forces during armed combat, you find that there is no um, immunity 
for acts of terrorism required by customary international law. There are two basic arguments that support that. Um, the first is uh, the argument that acts of terrorism or material support for terrorism are uh, not, in fact, acta jure imperii, but are acta jure gestionis. Um, because the court in Germany versus Italy generally recognizes that there's no immunity for acts that are acta jure gestionis. Acta jure gestionis are not limited to commercial acts. Um, the ICJ in Germany versus Italy uh, defines them to include commercial acts, but really they are acts that um, uh, not just sovereigns can engage in that are not unique to the state, as James Crawford puts it. And um, those certainly include terrorism and material support of terrorism, because um, there are, uh, uh, well, there are lots of terrorists who are not states. Um, the second line of argument is that even if they are acts jure imperii, um, they, uh, that wasn't enough for the court in Germany versus Italy. Uh, it conceded that uh, acts of armed forces during armed combat were, fell into that category, and yet it still looked for a general and consistent practice of states followed out of a sense of legal obligation. It found it in the practice of states, after going on for page after page of state practice. If you do the same thing with terrorism, you find no general and consistent practice of states. Mostly, you find silence, which brings us back to Christina's point about how do you read silence. Um, but you also find two states that have expressly allowed suits based on terrorism, the United States and Canada. And so, you, and you don't find anything like what the court relied on in Germany versus Italy. So that was the approach of the International Court of Justice, which was not to assume that there was a general rule of immunity from which we had to find exceptions, but rather to assume, its approach was to assume that there was no immunity with respect to specific activities unless there was a general and consistent practice of states supporting it. And they found it with respect in Germany versus Italy. I would submit that it is not present with respect to terrorism. I expect I'll get pushback on that. But. Right, we'll collect We'll go in the, now the, we've got precedent, so we'll collect comments. Ed is next. Um, thanks. Um, I want to um, pull out a little bit more explicitly something that I think Christina is saying in her um, paper and proposed um, chapter and apply it a little bit also to the um, IO question as well. Um, so I think that this issue of extending the shelf life is, is a critical one and, and a, a potentially frustrating one. Um, I want to ask that more explicitly not about um, uh, how that is um, potentially challenged by um, or could be redeemed by um, the changing tides of customary international law, but focus much more narrowly and superficially on the question of uh, areas in which Congress, that are high salience for Congress and the courts. Um, how does one um, choose to address questions that um, Congress is 
uh, quite actively, if ad hoc and um, partial uh, in its reactions to, you, that ones that are not only statutory in nature, but what the uh, ones that Congress has shown a willingness or an aptitude for revisiting quite frequently. How do you, how do you address that productively and constructively in a restatement uh, when uh, it could be that in the next session, um, Congress does something that totally um, uh, renders the black letter uh, instruction of the restatement utterly moot? Um, that seems to me a very difficult um, and, and deep uh, question. I think this is true with respect to the terrorism exceptions um, uh, generally. I think it's potentially true with respect to um, IO immunity, depending upon what the Supreme Court does in jams and what might follow thereafter for um, uh, individual uh, regulations or um, we talk about IO immunity generally but obviously it's something that's quite varied in terms of the existing treatment of particular IOs subject to international agreements um, and so it's quite possible that we would have a situation in which depending upon the result in jams we have individuated uh, reactions by Congress and what, what does one do about that how do you add value in an area that is so fluid and subjected to uh, legislative overhaul one thing you can do, um, obviously, is to just explain how whatever it is that Congress is doing statutorily, how it fits together with other um, sources of obligation. Um, you can explain that, well, there is customary international law in this area, too. There are also international agreements, and then kind of treat whatever Congress does statutorily as uh, a subordinate question or is just kind of a blank that could be filled in by future generations depending upon what the legislation looks like. Um, the Restatement Third did that to some degree with respect to uh, international organization immunity. I mean, it, it, its caution, I suppose, could be um, just because there wasn't much as much case law at that at that time, but it's really kind of frustrating if you look at the black letter on it. I think is it 467 or something like that. It it basically says, uh, and they get whatever um, immunity the statute ha may happen to say uh, they 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 get. You know, it really just passes the buck to the notes, and the notes just kind of do kind of a one on the one hand, on the other hand, this all remains to be seen. That could be useful as sort of a, um, a, a, just identifying where different sources of law are and then leaving Congress kind of um, as the, f the blank to be filled in. Um, one could alternatively explain what the um, prevailing view of the statute is by describing in an extremely careful way what all the um, case law is um, interpreting that. Uh, one could try to take one's um, best appreciation of uh, the best view of the statute to some degree, irrespective of what the um, uh, cases do. One of the things that's interesting to me about this, uh, recognizing the difficulty and not providing you with an answer for this at all, um, is the restatement um, can, it seems to me, um, uh, embody um, the Charming Betsy principle here. Um, so the, um, I know there's a, there's a discussion yesterday about how much this is a separation of powers question and what exactly one means to think of Charming Betsy in that way. But um, I think to the extent one informs Congress as a blank check or as a detailed matter, um, what the consequences are of, um, of taking a position um, statutorily on a question that touches on international law, um, the restatement can make 
statutory decisions that may moot um, the restatement better informed uh, and can simply charge Congress as well as the executive branch with making an informed um, decision. Um, and so even if um, whatever you write in the restatement goes down in a blaze of glory in the next, uh, in the next session, you will at least have made that decision uh, a more considered one um, and that may be good even if it's not uh, extending the shelf life much at all. Uh, terrific presentations all, and I just wanted to make a uh, sort of a global political economy comment and then a local political economy comment. Uh, the global point is, uh, I'll preface it by saying I, I think Beth's paper is completely right on, and, and indeed she undersells the problem. Uh, I mean, one of the things that, you know, from a political economy perspective is very striking is the uh, Haddafi aside, Libya aside, every penny that's been paid out, and a lot has been paid out, has been U.S. taxpayer money. So we have a process by which the United States government pays money to people who are victims and, and, uh, in some sense, and, and, but aren't really distinguishable from people who've suffered other kinds of hard knocks, uh, and who have lawyers who get paid, and, and one of the interesting things about this process is the difference between the lawyers who generate this legislation and people like Beth, people like Katie Redden, and other folks who uh, have been very interested in getting their clients compensated, but uh, it's fair to say they're not in it to buy another yacht or a private airplane. Uh, uh, so the general political economy point I would make is that those of us, like me, who believe that it's important to raise questions about the institutional competency of the judiciary, uh, which I think is part of the zeitgeist and is part is a thread that runs through the restatement. You know, one of the things we have to acknowledge uh, is it's not like the legislative process is a walk on the beach either. Uh, that we, we say and believe, you know, Congress ought to be required to say more before plunging the United States into this endeavor. Um, we have to own the fact that Congress sometimes does some pretty objectionable things, and I think I agree with Beth on the terrorism exception. Um, so that's the general political economy point. The local point is about uh, the political economy of the restatement, and I wish G-Day were here uh, to continue this conversation. You know, the, what I consider the canonical article by Scott and then Scott and Schwartz um, talked about the three-way dynamic between the reporters, the advisors, and the council. I won't bore you with the details. You can read it. but. Uh, I think David will attest that there was an early draft of a preliminary draft of the restatement that suggested that it was a serious question whether the U.S. legislation violated international law. Um, and that suggestion disappeared after uh, review of the uh, advisors. Uh, and I guess the only thing I will say is that there were voices and, and maybe even people who were double-hatted because they were both advisors and a member of the council who you know, expressed their concerns about this. Not quite the argument that we, I don't think we had, maybe we did, anyway. They weren't exactly making Bill's argument, but they weren't disagreeing with Bill either. 
on, on this point. Um, and, and I think it's fair to say we just, the decision was made, there's not a clear enough view to flag as Christina would like us to do. Um, and, and in a way that's reassuring because it, it, I, I think it's quite clear that uh, hobby horse professors don't run this process, or at least there are significant constraints on hobby horse uh, professors. Um, but it also means it's hard to, especially when we disagree among ourselves, and Bill and I happen to disagree on how we read uh, Germany versus Italy respectfully and cordially. Uh, um, you know, it makes it harder to run up the flag on these kind of issues. Good. Well, so I, you, I'll call, ask you all to comment on what we've heard and on each other, of course. Uh, I'll just say that it's not only professors who have hobby horses. Having been a professor and having been something else, I've seen everybody has a hobby horse in their cupboard. <laughs> Beth, would you like to start? I'll just say that I have multiple hobby horses in this race. Um, I, uh, I'm, I'm used, when Paul and Bill disagree, I am used to respectfully siding with Bill, and it's, a, it's an unusual and, and somewhat uncomfortable position. Um, <laughs> and um, and it, it, it's a hard one for me to articulated and finesse. I generally, I think I said this, and I, I, I may not say it as, as clearly as I could in, in, in the paper, but I generally support efforts to hold states and state officials accountable for human rights abuses. So, um, and I generally interpret international decisions um, as much as possible in ways that, that leave that open. I mean, I, I, was, I was rooting for Italy and Greece, and Germany v. Italy, um, and um, so, which explains why I you know, sort of try to veer off into the dis the discrimination, the irrationality, the unfairness of of the process. Um, you know, my my only question, but it would be, and this reflects conversations we've had today and and yesterday about about silence and and how to read absence of practice, but. You know, it's, it, what, 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 as far as I know, there's no state that has anything close to a provision that makes exceptions to foreign state immunity based on its political branch's characterization of a, a small number of other states. So only those states that our political branches, are, you know, whatever that is in our government, find problematic can be, have, have no immunity in our courts for the following acts. Canada, Canada that's right, one state, <laughs> sorry. Um, so um, so it, with that as such an exception, I would, um, I, I would think that this, we'd need some state practice to show it was okay. As Christina pointed out, we have objections. They just come from states we don't pay much attention to. Um, and I, I, it's in the paper I didn't mention today that Iran has actually gone to the uh, to the ICJ over this. Um, so I, I, I find that the 
the, the, the targeted removal of sovereign immunity to be, to be problematic. Um, okay, so, so um, thank you for the comments. Um, picking up on something um, that Beth had said, I think protests from other states are significant when the question is how do we interpret the data points of the U.S. as the first mover and Canada as a second mover. And I admit I have not yet read the fourth restatement cover to cover, but my... Um, Yes, <laughs> but my impression is that the restatement relies on legislation and judicial decisions. I can't think of a place where I've seen a protest by a government cited, um, but having been the co-editor of the contemporary practice section of AGEL when JASTA came out, um, I know that in response to JASTA, there were many and numerous protests from governments, um, not just Saudi Arabia, but many governments, um, European governments and others. And so the response to practice, I think, is quite relevant when it comes to how do we assess these data points. I do think that the, the restatement's reference to the, use, the US legislation and the Canadian legislation without addressing the responses that those legislation, that, that legislation has elicited um, perhaps gives a misleading picture of the world's response to what the US um, and Canada has done. Um, Bill, on your minor point that there are many terrorism exceptions rather than just one. In fact, I have an embarrassing subject-verb agreement typo on my paper, um, precisely because I had written it both ways <laughs> and then not converted all of my R's back to is's. Um, on the question of IO immunities, um, I just wanted to emphasize the point that even after the Supreme Court decision comes down in JAM versus IFC, um, the Supreme Court is deciding a very, very narrow question in that case, and a lot of the action is going to come down to questions about, well, so how do we assess the commercial versus non-commercial activities of international organizations? Um, for those international organizations that have treaties that address their immunities without having implementing legislation in a post-Medellin um, world, how confident are we about the self-executing nature of those immunity provisions? Um, I think the brief, the amicus brief that the US government filed was very optimistic about the ability of the United States to continue to comply with its international obligations to respect um, IO immunities. I have um, to admit to some nervousness that perhaps the, uh, the US government was overly optimistic that the position that it's taking in that case will not introduce a significant gap between um, the United States international obligations and its practice. Um, this discussion uh, underlines the wisdom of the organizers and Sir Jack and ordering this panel the way it is because these are our fundamental uh, questions. Um, just a few responses. Uh, Christina, you should always trust the government to do what's right and to know what's right. Uh, and if you can't do that, you should always trust the uh, the courts to sort out the mistakes that the legislature makes. Um, 
On the other hand, and, and more seriously, some of the arguments you both make are really arguments that go to the heart of the restatement as a, as a general project. The law is always changing. And the nice question is, when is it appropriate, when it is possible, when might it be useful to try to restatement the, restate the law as it is? If you wait until there's a certain degree of stability and clarity, then it seems to me there's not much point in restating it. If you, if you go too soon, you have a good chance of either missing the boat completely or perhaps influencing. Uh, so these questions were all discussed in both um, um, uh, the context of sovereign immunity and, and in other areas, including some areas that were decided not to be addressed in this one. Um, as to the, uh, uh, to the terrorism exception, Beth, I mean, uh, I don't think we ever thought it was our job to describe, the, to evaluate the wisdom of the statute. Uh, and that wasn't the restatement. That's, that's left to you as the professors and critics. And we all might be able to write an article that said this is a zany approach to things. It doesn't work very well. Um, it couldn't work very well if, uh, following your, your idea, because there is no agreed definition on terrorism. It's a highly political issue. Uh, from my point of view, uh, it went to, well, if, if it's difficult to restate the terrorism side, um, should we either restate the other parts of the Foreign Relations, uh, Foreign um, Sovereign Immunities Act and ignore um, uh, the terrorism exception because it's fuzzy and, and difficult, or should we not restate the sovereign immunities? Would, and that gets you back to the question, is it useful and, and for what purpose? Um, and I think the, the result is, um, is maybe not satisfying to everybody, but um, uh, it, it um, uh, as, as Paul has said, was a matter of discussion in the, the council advisory. And I think we've got a, a product that says uh, uh, something useful for folks while not necessarily addressing the obvious questions of is it effective, does it make any sense, is it defensible under international law? Footnote, of course, for the reasons you point, describing its effectiveness or legitimacy under, legitimacy under international law is very touchy given the pendency of, of litigation. More generally, returning to my first point, um, Yes, there, there's our statute, and then there is the Canadian statute, which I think has had one, maybe two cases. Um, but Beth, if we take your point of view, uh, uh, maybe we, there should never have been a, a restatement discussing the restrictive theory of immunity when it first came out, because it was a, uh, an initiative by some countries which more or less has gained uh, broader acceptance across the world. And even today, that's not an agreed norm in, in all systems of law. There's, you can, you can um, differentiate between those countries that do adopt a restrictive theory, however they define it, and those that still have an absolute immunity, including the widely accepted um, uh, UN Convention of 2006, which was adopted by unanimity and it reflects the uh, restrictive theory, and yet some countries have since then, having a joint consensus, said, no, oh, we're not too sure that maybe absolute immunity is, in fact, the right thing. So it comes back to the question of, um, of when, if ever, is a, is a restatement useful. I think on the immunities of international organizations, um, yeah, it's a, it's a rapidly changing area. We'll have to see what the JAM case says, but my own personal view, and I think Ingrid's as well, as indicated in our, our paper, is that this actually might well be a, a useful uh, a time in which to, to put out it, because the restatement can have a positive effect. Um, it's also, I think, possible we miss the ferry entirely, but that's on the on the uh, co-chairs, co not on the rest of us. So they're in charge. Right. 
Yes, do. So, David, my, um, I mean, my, my attempt would be, uh, although my feelings about the wisdom and efficacy are my hobby horse, but my, my, my attempt in terms of the restatement would be to, to ask, to question whether the restatement did enough with the international law questions. Um, I'd, I'd have to, I'm not for, I'd have to go back and see how the early restatements handled the um, ha handled the changing sovereign immunity law and and whether the fact that the U.S. was in front, whether it was changing, whether other states disagreed, was part of the part of the comments and notes. Um, and the, this this is a statute that's been around for 20 years, so I think that. Um, I think that's enough time to have said more about international law questions. And I'm sort of fascinated by the issue of, uh, of the impact on, on litigation. I mean, I, I, I see that as, I recognize that as a problem for the executive branch in, in, in voicing its disagreement now. But it, you know, in our discussions about the restatement, that was not something that I've, uh, that I've thought of before as a constraint on, on the restatement. would. Is, is it a concern that questioning the, the international law validity of this provision would have been immediately cited by the defendant states in, in, in these cases? Question? Like Paul, Beth, Beth, I really like, I, w I would like to jump on your hobby horse because this statute and JASTA have been um, I'm on the wrong side again. I know, I know. Um, <laughs> you know, but like, but I, I, I mean, I just read all of 460 again, um, and and I see why the the restatement 460 and, and David and the reporters and everyone who was involved came out where they were as a legal matter. I mean, I guess my question is, the strongest arguments against it really belong in the statement of facts, not the brief, right? So, so. You could state like, well, and and out of the these are all have been default. Most of them have been default judgments, and out of the three billion that were collected, three billion, two point nine billion came from the United States. Uh, and 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 when Iraq was on the list, we took it off because you know uh, we became Iraq and was on the uh, on the hook for the bills. And so I'm just wondering, you know, I mean, it's not. To the extent that judges will look at this, I think that because it's a default judgment, because they're arguing against an empty chair, um, a lot of these facts are not obvious. And I'm just wondering to what extent should, it seems to me, and I, and I, I get it that it's probably not a comment level thing, but certainly, you know, presenting it as newsworthy facts in the reporter's notes might have accomplished some of what needs to be said. Because I don't know if your average district judge and his or her clerks understands the political economy and that the United States government and taxpayers ultimately end up paying most of this, right? And so I'm just wondering, uh, um, maybe, maybe that's something that's available or could have been done to sort of flag this issue because to some extent, um, I think that the legal analysis is right on. I mean, there's nothing inaccurate about all this and the legal arguments, you could sort of argue where it is on customary international law. But those are pretty jarring facts, like how this all plays out. Um, just before I get to my comment, uh, maybe a comment on, on Tom's 
I, I also have not yet read the restatement cover to cover, um, but I'm not sure if there's any other place where there's an elucidation of sort of political and factual circumstances surrounding particular legislation that would suggest without saying that it was a bad idea. So that, that would strike me as jarring in a, in a restatement, but I'll leave that to the, the reporters. Um, so yeah, thanks for, thanks for these presentations. And I think I, I have some specific questions, but I will try to frame them at a level of generality that they might be more applicable to methodology in volume two um, more generally. So, uh, so one question, maybe that actually relates a little bit to Tom's suggestion would be, uh, and one of the reasons I was just checking my phone is to reconfirm that the Canadian Act also is triggered by a political listing process, which, which it is. And I, I just wanted to reconfirm that because it seemed to me that um, there, there's uh, uh, two layers of objection to the current form of uh, th this particular act, uh, as it was pointed out, perhaps unlike JASTA, it, it does have this political trigger. So there's a, a sort of diplomatic repercussions uh, aspect built in that might, might, one might think runs counter to principles of, of legality. Um, so it seems that there's one aspect, which is the, the trigger, and then the other aspect, and, and I don't understand Bill to have spoken to the trigger part of the statute. Um, and I understand Bill to have spoken to the second piece, which is the nature of the conduct and whether we have sufficiently crystallized understandings about state immunity to uh, state entitlement to immunity for whatever conduct we're going to define as terrorism, which is itself perhaps a more open question. Um, so that's, that's the first point is, is, are there actually two levels of issues here? Um, to tease out. On the, um, on the nature of the conduct issue, if a future elaboration or expansion of the sections on sovereign immunity were to encompass more of a restatement of international law rather than uh, like really cataloging and crystallizing practice under our domestic immunity statute, um, I think interesting things to explore would include Bill's suggestion um, that acta iure gestionis uh, include but are not limited to commercial acts, but rather should be defined as acts that only states, uh, or acts that not only states can engage in. Um, I think that's an interesting definition. Uh, torture presumably wouldn't fall under that definition. Um, right, but torture presumably wouldn't fall <laughs> under that definition. Um, and then the... Uh, state practice issue on granting immunity or not for acts that fall outside that definition. So again, if we understand that torture, at least as defined in the Convention Against Torture, would not qualify under the ICJ's definition of acta iure gestionis, then the question is, um, do we need to look simply, and this is Bill's you know, favorite level of generality question, right? Do we need to look for state practice affirmatively granting state immunity for torture, or do we just need to look for state practice, which I think we have, affirmatively granting state immunity for, for that category, acta iure imperii, once we determine that torture falls within that act, uh, or within that category. Um, so, so definition of acta iure gestionis, do we restate the ICJ's definition, and if so, what are the implications of that? And then uh, level of generality for state pra practice affirmatively granting immunity, is it the category acta iure imperi once we've defined it, or do we have to look sort of act by act? And then final point, um, I, uh, Sir Jack mentioned the 
uh, idea that's been advanced and, and rejected in US courts anyway, and also rejected under the UK State Immunity Act of Ayus Kogan's exception. Uh, but that also raises the methodological issue, of course, of, of the role of domestic court decisions, as uh, we discussed a little bit yesterday, as either state practice and or opinio juris, and, and more particularly, at least in, in the UK's case, and I think Australia as well, uh, state decisions that are pursuant to state immunity acts. In other words, if we're not purporting to interpret and apply customary international law directly, but rather we're interpreting and applying the statute, uh, does that count differently? Yes. Now, I, I, I I've got Austin. I, I don't, what I don't know, I'm just going to, because I don't know what the state practice is on this. I don't know whether Paul has just not put his flag down from last time, <laughs> or whether it's all Austin and then Paul, but it's definitely Austin first. So. <laughs> we'll get the last one, but under a different category. <laughs> the question of silence. Um, to me, it's troubling if we use silence to, in a subcategory of issues, to displace the general rule. And so maybe. Maybe this isn't equivalent or not, but it would seem to me very clear that international law prohibits targeted assassination. The fact that the United States has done it in a number of instances and other people haven't formally come out and protested something that is obviously a violation seems to me then a little disingenuous to then later go on a um, little later and say the U.S. practice now suggests that the custom has changed. And so I'm nervous about those moves, that when you have established principles, and it seems to come up in this panel and in the earlier panel, um, and I, I don't think that's what the ICJ is doing. And so I, I'm not saying that they don't do it in certain instances, um, but it seems to me particularly we should be concerned about that in situations where the state practice isn't justifying the de deviation on the basis of some theory of international law. And so I'd be more comfortable if the United States, when it deviated from the original principle, did so with the justification for why under the principles of international law they were able to do it. But if they don't do that, and then we later on use their state practice or our state practice as an evidence that we've created a new rule. Uh, that seems problematic to me. And so I, I, maybe I'm wrong, I, I am not an expert in this area at all, but it seems like a similar move that we have agreed upon uniform that you have sovereign immunity. And I guess the question to my mind is I'm assuming that if Iran designates the United States as a sponsor of state uh, terrorism under their own statute, and the changes in the international system goes so that litigation starts occurring outside the United States, that there is no sovereign immunity for the United States because of the self-definition of another country, eh, that we're in that exception, even if that definition is facially observed, right? Um, I, I'd assume that has to be the, the implications, that there, if international law doesn't protect this, and the idea is that any individual state can define what their sponsor of state terrorism is, then I, as another country, can freely define that as um, they have a Wall Street that seems to me terroristic, and therefore as long as I define them, I'm no longer constrained. That sounds absurd, but presumably that's the result. Uh, if I'm, Beth, if I'm understanding your perspective, that that's essentially what we've done here, is that we've allowed the political process to define it without any real standard, uh, such as in the Cuba example. Right. Our last round of responses from the panel. David, no? Christina? No. I'll, I'll just say quickly that I'm, I'm not completely convinced, but I have to go back and, and read the uh, ICJ decision about the, the distinction between the, the public acts, and private acts, commercial conduct, because war crimes can be committed by non-state actors. They're the public acts of the government, when they're committed by a state, 
but so is, you could, I think you could say the same thing about terrorism, about torture. Sometimes it's committed by a state and sometimes not. I'm, I, I'll go back and read it, Bill. I, you've read it more carefully and recently than I have. Yep. And other people who are thinking about this. I think you're right. One has, one has to sort of categorize and distinguish and, and try and think what are likes and what are dislikes. And, and, um, and I think one has to do it to some extent tele teleologically with an idea of what some of the purpose of the rules are. Um, I think torture is potentially different from terrorism in, this, in the sense that torture is defined under international law only when it's under color of state law. So that, whereas terrorism is not. War crimes is more complicated because obviously not just states commit war crimes, not just states commit genocide. There are certain violations of international law that don't have that state action requirement. And then I think one would have to think about whether war crimes, um, how that plays out in this context. And I think what the ICJ was saying in Germany versus Italy is that war crimes by armed forces during armed combat. Um, we can look at state practice and say that that category of things actually has been granted immunity by just about every state that has addressed the question. So we don't have silence, we actually have a lot of action um, in that context. And I think that, um, I mean, one could make the same argument with, I suppose, with respect to terrorism that acts of states supporting terrorism are different from acts of non-states supporting terrorism. So one could draw the same distinction. I still think though, if you look at for acts of, for state practice with respect to acts of states supporting terrorism, you don't find the state practice that the ICJ found in the armed forces context. I know that's a lot of hair splitting, but that's what we do. Paul in his other hat. I just, I haven't yet thanked my friend, my colleague, and all of you, because I, as, as Ralph said, this is not my field, although my job made me, made me learn bits of it. This has been a very stimulating day, and day, day two days for me. Um, I think we, we as the participants ought to thank all those who organized it. Um, for doing that, and uh, I, I'm not going to, anything more would be repetition, so I'll just hand over to the boss, and uh, there we go. Well, let me first say, when those who organized it are Judy, I'm the contributor of chaos uh, uh, in this, but uh, so we owe Judy a great <laughs>